With a traditional fund, you talk to analysts, then maybe you talk to the principal, then you talk to the partner, then you go to the IC meeting. And a lot of times you're telling the same story, having the same conversations those four times and it's with different people. With my fund, because it was just me, I had a much deeper relationship with the founders just purely from the fact that I spent more time with them. And it was in a one-on-one -on -one setting. So I got to know them over, you know, however long it took to do diligence. And at that point, they got to know me better. I got to know them better. And we had a much clearer idea of what working together would be like. Hi, I'm Amanda Kua, and this is One More Scoop. Here, we're sitting down with Southeast Asia's top founders, executives, and investors to have honest conversations about their personal journeys and find out what really happens behind the scenes. Today, I'm speaking with Wing Vasek Siri. Wing is the founder and general partner at WV, having previously founded iSeed SEA in 2020. He has raised not one, but two solo GP funds, focused on Southeast Asia, partnering with founders at the earliest possible stages with a focus on Thailand, Singapore, Indonesia, and Vietnam. Previously, he was an operator on the venture team at AngelList, where he built products to serve fund managers and angel investors in Silicon Valley. Hi, Wayne. Nice to finally meet you sort of face-to-face. -face. We have never actually formally talked before, so I think that will make this episode all the more interesting. Looking forward to getting to know you a lot better. Yeah, no, thanks a lot, Amanda. Thanks for having me on. I've been uh, following your work in Backscoop for a while, so excited to, to chat here. And the next 60 minutes are going to be fun. So I think the first question we really ask all of our guests here is, what was your childhood like and where did you grow up? Yeah, so I guess starting from the beginning, I grew up in Bangkok, so born and raised in, in Thailand. Um, I'm here now and most of the year I still hang out out here. You know, I think childhood, traditional kind of Asian background of family, right? So education was always a big factor growing up. But from, from both my parents, that was always a, a big thing where they spent a lot of time instilling this mentality of kind of work hard, you do well in school, you get to a good college, you get a good job, and that's kind of the, the path to success, right? It's like a very kind of track traditional life. My mom actually ran a kindergarten, so I guess maybe even more so of me, that, that was a big focus. But, you know, I, I think overall I had a great childhood a lot of support and love from, from my family growing up. So I think a lot of how I was raised definitely shaped who I am today. Well, um, were any of your parents related, I mean, doing anything in the entrepreneurial side or in the investing side? Was there any direct influence from them there? Or do you think the influence on you in terms of your career was different? Yeah, so definitely not a lot of direct influence there. My mom worked at a kindergarten. So it was actually my grandmother's kindergarten. I guess maybe on my grandmother's side, there's a bit of entrepreneurship mentality, a bit of risk-taking there because she moved here from Singapore. So she was Singaporean, married a Thai person, my grandfather, and then started a kindergarten. And it was always her dream, right? So she she loved kids and wanted to start a kindergarten. That's where my mom worked um, for a long time. My dad, much more kind of traditional. He worked in, in real estate, corporate job. And then ended up starting his own business, but it wasn't really with like a tech startup mentality growing up. And, and honestly, if I look back on it now, I think it was kind of the opposite. You know how usually kids will say that 
if their parents pushed them too hard into one thing, they ended up running the other way. So I think growing up, like I said, big emphasis on education. And it was very much emphasis on not doing anything that was not taking big risks, I'd say. So kind of going that stable track life is what my parents always pushed me for. And so me kind of starting a fund, going into venture capital entrepreneurship was very different to that. And I think that's traced back to more of my days in college. And we can talk a bit about that. What were you interested in when you were growing up, like in grade school or middle school? Do you remember any of your early hobbies, especially the ones that stuck? I liked Lego a lot. I always liked building Lego sets. Um, so that's something people probably don't know about me. I think that's... Uh, I uh, don't have a lot of time for that nowadays, but um, growing up and you know into my teenage years, I, I liked building building Lego sets. That's probably the big one. Also, martial arts has mm-hmm. always been a big part of my life. So I grew up doing like Taekwondo, Muay Thai, and now I do Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. And I think there's a lot of lessons just around kind of discipline and consistently showing up and hard work that I've taken from that particular hobby and been able to apply to to other aspects of my life. But those are the two big memorable ones for me. So did the um, Legos stick until now? Do you still do it semi-regularly? I know you said you don't have that much time, but are you still into it? If I had time, I would do that all day. <laughs> but uh, n- not so much anymore. So do you buy like the pre-made like sets? I think if you go to the Lego store, there are these huge boxes now and like one of them's like a a car, one of them is like a truck. Yeah. Lego low-key has turned around as a business incredibly well. There was a time when they were faltering, people weren't buying stuff. And what they did is they started striking deals with really big IP license holders. Right? So it's like yeah. Marvel, Harry Potter, whatever. And they also have this kind of like fan design set where people are able to dis- submit their own submissions. And there's some really cool stuff. Like there was like a Pac-Man console that I saw. But yeah, I think Lego has turned around their business a lot. So I don't have a lot of time for it now. But um, if, if I did, I'd still definitely want to pick up that hobby again. Hasn't been a big priority lately, unfortunately. I don't think I've ever like done any Lego sets in years. But I did see the Batmobile recently. And I thought that would be pretty fun to recreate because of the shape. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah. Do you have like a favorite set? Growing up, I liked castles a lot. So like when I was young, I would really like to buy and build these like Lego castle sets. I don't have them with me anymore, unfortunately. If I got lost as I was moving houses throughout my uh, teenage years. But that was kind of like the big memorable one growing up. But why castles of all things? That's a good question. I, I guess maybe part of that is like influenced by media, like, you know, liked fantasy a lot, kind of Lord of the Rings and, and things like that, watching that as a kid. So maybe there's some of that influence. They were also just a shape. It was like complex shape. So it's like, I think what I liked was kind of like that creation process where it's like you start with nothing and you over time, you slowly see how that forms. And because castles are so complex, you could uh, see just like the skill involved. I always had a lot of admiration, I think, for the people who like design those sets. I think just the amount of love and care that goes into that, the amount of effort that goes into designing that is something that I've always thought about at the back of my mind. And then like fast forward to the tail end of high school, I know you took the international baccalaureate. So you're probably thinking hopefully hard about where you wanted to go after. So at the end of high school, where did you want to go? What did you want to do? At least what was the plan? Yeah, I mean, I'd say for most of my life, I was in like a very tracked path, right? It was like, you do what everyone else around you is doing and you don't really know what you want. So you end up following what other people want or what you you think you're supposed to want. So in high school, the plan was always kind of like, all right, 
do your best in exams. And, you know, I did well as a student and then get into the best college. And so my uncle is actually a consultant. And in my, I think it was my junior year of high school, like going into my senior year, I did an internship at his consulting firm. Like that was always just kind of the path for me. It was like, all right, well, you know, if I do well enough, maybe I'll get a job at like BCG or Bain or McKinsey or whatever, and kind of follow that path. So I think at high school, that was still very much top of mind. It was still the goal. And like, it was fun, right? It was kind of like you compete, you kind of do well, you slowly progress. It's like you just level up every time you do IGCSE in middle school, you do IB in high school, then you do a standardized test and you get into school and then you kind of like keep competing. So that that was um, very much the path for me early on. And did you actually want to do it? Like when you think about it, you thought, okay, this is okay. I'm okay with walking this path. Or did you have any strong feeling like, okay, I don't really know what I'm doing, but whatever. So looking back now, I definitely didn't want to do it independently. The want very much came from the people around me wanting it and pushing for it. And this kind of bled into my first, second year of college as well. So it wasn't something that I truly wanted. It's more just naturally what happened as, as a result of the people around me. Um, so looking back now, I definitely see that clearly, but I feel like in the moment that would have been hard to know. Mm-hmm. So in the moment, you're like, I'm okay with walking these, this path, but looking back, you're you're probably not as okay with it as you thought, but just going with it. <laughs> exactly. And it was fun. Like it wasn't not fun too, right? Like I think that's the main thing that people miss out where like, you know, you're walking a track path. It's like, it can be fun. There's like a lot of like dopamine hits along the way. It's like, you kind of do well and you progress along the way, like keeps you on that bit of a rat wheel a little bit, kind of still doing the thing and and competing and doing, I guess it's like doing what you think you're supposed to do. And Mm -hmm. even though it's not what you really want to do, the fact that you're doing it and you're making progress is still- It feels good. uh, (laughs) still fun. Yeah, it feels good. Exactly. So when you graduated, did you get into the universities you thought you wanted to go to? Or, you know, the ones that you're supposed to go to, at least, like, did you hit the mark? The number one university I wanted to go to was UPenn. I really wanted to go to Wharton for undergrad. I got waitlisted and then rejected. So unfortunately, did not go into get into my top choice school. I did get into Berkeley. And that was that was pretty high up there. It was probably like UPenn, Stanford and Berkeley. And yeah, I guess, and we can talk a bit about this later. But looking back now, I don't think I would be in the position I am today if I hadn't gone to Berkeley and just kind of be exposed to everything happening on campus at that time. And I, I do think if I went to UPenn, I would still be in that tracked path that we talked about. And, you know, not that there is necessarily anything wrong with that. I just think that I, I'm a lot happier now. You'd probably be a consultant if I interviewed you in that alternate reality. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A lot of my friends are doing that and, and they love it, but I'm very happy in the path now. So, yeah. So can you tell me about what it was like going to Berkeley, moving there? Was it your first time living overseas, even for like a short time? Mm-hmm. Um, so I visited the US before. I'd never been to the West Coast or I went once when I was like maybe like three or four, but it's not something that I, I remember. So it was very different. Diff- different Initially, I'd say it was difficult um, moving away first time on my own living there. And Berkeley... If you've never been, it's a very liberal city, right? So it's like you're very much integrated into like the hippie culture. Um, so so there's a very distinct feel when you're part of the, the campus and part of the school. The thing that I liked a lot really early on was kind of just the push from students into entrepreneurship and starting companies and that being a really big focus for the student life there. So, you know, when, when I went to Berkeley, like 18, 19, my friends at that point were already starting companies or thinking about it or raising money. Like it wasn't 
it was kind of the norm to do that, kind of take that risk experiment. And I think the fact that the school intentionally or unintentionally fosters that environment um, really helped a lot in terms of my development and also for for my peers around me. Um, so at Berkeley, my first ever job was actually at the Center for Entrepreneurship. It was a really cool job. We had exchange students come to Berkeley every year. And the idea was basically I would show them around campus, bring them to entrepreneurship classes and be kind of the the hub for them to integrate into campus life. Um, so that was actually my first ever job. And, and I loved it, like working with these exchange students who had always aspired to start a company, be a founder, people who were kind of taking risk and at the forefront of that. That was really my first exposure into the world of um, uh, startups and, and entrepreneurship. And then in the job, when you would, you know, tour these people around, was that were those people current students at other universities in maybe their fourth year or were they like a mixed bag? It was mixed. It was a mix of probably second and third and fourth year students. Um, there, we had an exchange program of just European or universities in Europe mostly. So it was kind of European students coming in and, and showing them around. And yeah, it was a mixed bag. And then when you would show them around, would these students mostly be like mm, entrepreneurs themselves? Are they working for startups or? Again, would it also be a mixed bag as well? They were mostly students who either were starting companies or had the aspiration to start companies. And I think what one of the biggest things from that was seeing how excited they were to just be on campus at that point. And, you know, I guess maybe like when I first got there, I either took it for granted or didn't know how important Berkeley was as a hub for entrepreneurship and tech in, in Silicon Valley and, and the Bay Area. But seeing it through the eyes of these people who came, who were just so excited to go to the classes, be on campus, go to buildings where like companies are being started and have access to this infrastructure that the university gave was pretty big. So I guess as an example, you know, I think Berkeley's maybe Stanford, but they're one of the only universities that have like, I think two or three dedicated funds who who just support students and Berkeley uh, affiliated faculty. Um, later on, I actually ended up working in one of those funds, but they were one of the, the few campuses that had such a infrastructure for like that accelerators for students at classes that you could take and earn credit where the only thing you did was start a company. So, you know, when you remove a lot of the downside risk that comes from a traditionally risky looking thing, starting a company that really enables a lot of the entrepreneurship to, to flourish, I think. So were a lot of your classmates building companies at the same time as, you know, doing their degree? Or were you seeing students like start to want to drop out? Or do you think that having this environment actually made them stay instead of want to drop out? Yeah, I guess. So it, it usually starts off as like you build it either as part of a class, as part of uh, decal. So at Berkeley, there's this really cool thing called decal. And these were classes where you would get credit, but they were like really fun things. So there was like, a Harry Potter class where you just like analyze Harry Potter movies. There's like chess class, martial arts class, and entrepreneurship was a big one. So a lot of them, their genesis started in some of these classes. And then over time, as the students became more serious, especially if they ended up raising any money, they would drop out. And another thing to Berkeley's credit is they Berkeley made it very easy for you to drop out. So it's quite easy for you to drop out, take a year or two years off, see if this thing works. And then your place back at the university is guaranteed, right? So there's not a lot of downside risk there where you're like, hey, you can take two years off and then you can always come back if it doesn't work out. 
at the worst, it'll be just an, an insane learning experience. Oh, that's actually pretty interesting. So it's easy to drop out and come back if it doesn't work out. Yeah, exactly. And then like you mentioned that this was your first job at the university. Was there anything else um, in your university experience that really influenced you to get into startups and fundraising, investing, that side of things? Or did your interest come in later? It came pretty early on. I think probably since I was like 19 freshman or sophomore year of college, I started paying attention to venture capital. And honestly, I was drawn more by the personalities at that time. So like start exposure to entrepreneurship, then learn about VC. And you know, there's a surprising number of content that you can just consume on YouTube if you're just interested. And I, I got interested, right? And there so at that point I started listening to interviews from people like uh Peter Thiel, Chris Saka, Fred Wilson, you know, like legendary VCs who have kind of done really well for themselves in the business. And when I heard them speak, just how thoughtful they were about the future, using all these different frameworks to think about the future and, and how things would change, how positive they were. I think that was a big one, kind of like just fundamentally optimistic people about technology's role in society. And that really drew me to venture. So these people very quickly became my role models in a sense. I, I looked up to them. I was like, okay, I want to do what they're doing. And this was early on. So the, since 19, I started kind of planning and plotting my way. All right, what's the path to become a VC? How does one get there? So I looked at kind of these successful folks. So I was like, okay, how did they get there? And there's a variety of backgrounds. Right? Some came from uh, banking, some of them in career VC, some came from operators at startup, some started companies, some were journalists. So there's a really wide variety of background. But when I set my sights on like, all right, I want to become a VC, I immediately thought, okay, I'm going to go the operator route. So I started interning at a couple of startups, just helping out, working for free, you know, sending a lot of cold emails. And I think this is one skill that I learned early that I really think is kind of the ultimate equalizer, which is just the ability to like shoot your shot, take risk and, and, and send cold emails. Right? I probably send thousands and thousands of cold emails and just through sheer force of will have made jobs happen, fundraisers happen. And yeah, that's one skill that I really feel like I've invested a lot into and it, it's paid back an equal amount. But yeah, so I was actually pretty systematic about wanting to get into venture and finding the best path to doing that. So do you remember the first time you got exposed to these people like Chris Saka, et cetera? Like, was it a friend who told you like, hey, check these out? Or was it just you surfing the net and then they just popped out? Do you even remember? <laughs> I actually do. And it's a funny story. It was actually from Shark Tank. So I don't know if you watched the show, yeah. but I've always loved watching that show growing up. And I watched it for a while. And Chris Saka was a guest shark on a oh, couple of episodes. I didn't even know that. <laughs> and it just... Yeah, yeah. You should go back and watch them. It's they're they're really fun. Like him and Mark Cuban go at it. And you know, I, I always kind of liked the other sharks, but when Chris Saka came on, just like I don't I don't remember exactly what it was. Maybe it was like the lens through which he was viewing the world. Like it got me really interested. So he came on maybe like three or four episodes. And after that, I just started watching YouTube videos of his interviews. And there's a lot out there. Um, you know, like he was on This Week in Startups early. Um, I think Sarah Lacey, I believe is her name, has has a podcast of him. And then from that, I got I started reading Fred Wilson's blog every day, um, avc.com, reading about Peter Thiel, reading his book, Zero to One, that came out later. Um, so that was kind of like the first moment. And it all kind of snowballed from there. 
And then when you were getting into, you know, reading their content, you said that they became role models for you. So I think you meant actual like role models in a holistic sense, like personally, not just professionally, right? It started professionally, but over time became personally too. And I wouldn't say it's like every aspect of them is something that I aspire to. I think that each of the folks that I have learned from from afar, each bring different things to the table that I really like. Honestly, I've noticed like each of them have kind of this one core idea that they bring up again and again. And that's been kind of a a, a big driving force in, in my own life. Yeah, both professionally and personally. Did you ever meet any of the role models you have or interact with them who were cold email since you mentioned cold email? I've cold emailed probably all of them. Um, meet, there's been a couple, um, a couple of other investors. So... Um, Albert Wanger, who is Fred Wilson's partner, and, and he's the managing partner at Uniscore Ventures now. Um, same story, right? Like code, e- code email him, met him in person, and he actually ended up investing in, in my fund later on. So that's one. Naval Ravikant, who started Angelus, was another big one. And I really love the content Naval puts out. So I actually ended up working at Angelus um, in San Francisco for a little bit. So got to interact with him there. Um, yeah, so, so there's definitely been a couple instances where, where that's happened. It looks like it actually went well, right? I mean, there's that, I think it's the saying people say, like, don't meet your role models. But I feel like for you, it's always been a positive experience. So what was it like to actually meet them um, and have good, positive experience with them? What was that like for you? You know, I still go to the fact that, like, I don't know if when we talk about role models, typically it's like you want to emulate every part of their life, right? It's like, I still go back to this idea that, like, I think the best thing is to pull one ideas from them and then make that your own. And that part of making your own, I think, is is really important. So I guess meeting them, it was like amazing for me, right? Like like in the moment. But looking at it now, it's like, I guess it's like, at the end of the day, they're just keep... Um, and I kind of like that I never met the OG ones like Chris Sacco or Peter Thiel, because like that way they kind of stay a little distance. And you can still learn from these people about meeting them. Like they, they put out so much content. And over time, if you like absorb this, you really... I think, understand their way of thinking. So yeah, I think they're just kind of pros and cons to both. But honestly, now that I've been doing it a while, I like keeping them more at arm's length and kind of admiring them from afar, as opposed to kind of meeting in person and having kind of like everything they say be the gospel right? and you follow everything. Right. I think another quote that I read like related to that was you want to find the best parts of all of your role models, whether you meet them in person or not. Because yeah, at the end of the day, people are people and people all have their like different sides. Like for all you know, you met them on a bad day. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that, that's a big thing too, right? It's like going back to the cold email thing, I think people underestimate how big of a role randomness and chance actually plays a part in your life. If I'm sending a cold email today and maybe the person I'm emailing had a bad day and didn't have lunch or whatever, they're way less likely to respond. So I think just the number of shots you take actually matter here because there's so many factors that are outside your control as well. That's so true. Like I think, for example, with media pitches, right? Sometimes if you get them at a good time, like when you're actually doing like work hours and like, for example, for us, if on that day, we are still looking for one more piece of news, you're actually lucky and you might actually be one of the bigger headlines of the day for us just because on that day, we were still looking for a second um, piece to cover. So I totally agree. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So there's so much chance and randomness there. And that's really stuff that you can't control. So you talked about like being systematic about getting into venture and you focus on the operator route. So how many startups did you actually end up interning at? And how did you go about like 
choosing the startups that you'd reach out to? I know you said you cold emailed them, but did you cold email everyone or did you selectively cold email? I was 18 at that point. So I was literally <laughs> just spamming applications. <laughs> anyone who would take me, anyone who would respond, I, I was happy. And there were two companies that I ended up spending time with. Both were in Thailand, actually. So this was like kind of the summers and winters of my freshman and, and sophomore year. So there's a company called 30 Seconds to Fly. They were based in Bangkok. I worked with them over a summer and they were great. The founders really gave me a lot of ownership and autonomy early on when I was you know, very young, didn't know what I was doing. And the fact that they did that made me kind of love the tech and venture scene even more, like realizing, okay, if I'm at a big company, there's no way that I'd have this much ownership that my work would kind of impact the org in a specific way. So I spent a couple months with them. And then another company called Cretella, they were based in Singapore. And I did like a remote internship with them. That was like product management. And the founder, again, very gracious with his time, teaching me basic things like, you know, how you design product for users, how you talk to people. And those were kind of the two things. And Basically, those two experiences in line with my work at the center of entrepreneurship, which we talked about was like my first job, really got me my first venture capital role. And so that was an internship at 500 startups in San Francisco. So that was the first kind of like real exposure to a VC fund that I had. Um, and, you know, like usually when you go into venture, people think about investing as like the main thing that you want to learn, right? It wasn't an investor role I joined. It was more of a fundraising role. So specifically on the fundraising team, helping them fundraise for, I believe, their fourth fund at that time. So it was pretty cool entry where I got to see kind of the other side of the coin where it's like, all right, how do you fundraise? How do you pitch LPs? What do LPs care about? And, and things like that. So that was my first exposure into the, the VC world. And then when you had that sort of internship at 500, how did that impact like your outlook on joining like the VC world where you extra excited did it give you a new perspective was it something else yeah i guess like similar to i think i've been very lucky with my bosses who people have worked for so the partner there i worked for his name is arjun and he basically ran their fundraising process and um, we're still in touch to this day you know every now and then and similar thing was like he brought me into lp pitches as an intern right i, I got to really look firsthand at how it was done what is what, what it looked like he introduced me to so many people and kind of always supported me throughout that. I think my biggest takeaway from 500 Startups is they weren't afraid to kind of stand in their own. And they had basically, they had a deeply held conviction in their portfolio construction model, right? They, they're called 500 Startups because the idea is like you want to do 500 investments per fund. And for the most part, LPs don't like this. And, and most other VC funds don't like to project the idea to like, all right, we're not good pickers. They like to be like, okay, we're this Oracle. We can see, we have a crystal ball. We can see into the future. And that's what LPs are paying us this fee to do. Um, 500 kind of went against the grain and they're like, hey, we think that because the winners are so big, all that matters is getting into the winners. And in, in order to increase your chances of getting to the winners, we want to increase the size of our portfolio. So what that does is it basically reduces the variance, right? So it's like, you're probably not going to have a 30x fund with that portfolio model, but you can reliably deliver 4x funds more consistently over time because of the number of shots you have. And, and that was the whole thesis. And I believe their funds are doing very well. Um, so that was one big takeaway. 
And two was they were also the first U.S. branded fund to really even think about emerging markets. They they pioneered a lot of the emerging markets. And, you know, even in Southeast Asia, right, like some of the best managers in each of the respective countries here were the early 500 folks, um, like the Vietnamese guys and, and Thai guys, you know, at, at Ascend and at Orzon now. Um, they were the OG 500 manager, 500 startups managers. So I really think that exposure of like, hey, bringing a U.S. brand to emerging markets and kind of playing where there's no competition was was a big takeaway from there as well. And another thing I'm curious about is how did you end up going about your career? Like when you sort of were finishing up university, how did you think about getting into venture, getting into startups? Did you already have a plan? Yeah. So at 500 Startups, I started as an intern and then I stayed as a consultant um, afterwards just because the team liked working with me. So ended up doing that for close to a year um, while I was in university. And even while I was in university, I actually got another job at another venture fund as well um, while still in school. And this was my senior year. So I was an econ major. And lucky for me, the major wasn't too hard at Berkeley. You can kind of navigate, take your courses in a way that like open up your time. So my senior year in college, I was close to full time at this fund called the House Fund. It's actually a funny story. I applied to join them my sophomore year. And they were kind of like the premier venture fund on campus. right? So folks who don't know, I think they just closed a $110 million fund only focused on Berkeley affiliated founders. So they only uh, invest in Berkeley alumni, Berkeley students, Berkeley faculty. So kind of very specific niche thesis. The fund manager there, so he raised his first one when he was 22. He raised a $6 million fund straight out of college. And I was at that time helping them transition from fund one to fund two. Fund two, I believe, closed at somewhere around 50 million or something like that. So it was a big jump in AUM. And I was helping them throughout the whole investment process, the pipeline, sourcing deals, doing diligence, a bit on the fundraising side as well. So that's what I did my senior year. And by the time I graduated, you know, I knew I wanted to keep doing venture. And I'd spent time, again, like listening to Naval and kind of all his content. So knew about Angelus. And Angelus is actually how I got my first ever internship. And so they had this um, operations role. They called it the Angelus Analyst Program, but it wasn't an investing role. It was more of an ops role. And the, 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 the goal of the role is basically you help angel investors, fund managers get started. And so after I graduated, that was the, the role that I took. And I ended up working there for a year and a bit um, in, in that specific role. So you're working, I guess, more in like fund ops. Is that what it's called? Exactly. It, it was pure fund ops, but it was fund ops at a level that was very different to other fund ops jobs, I'd say, because so when I joined the, the team, there was five people. When I left, there was 30. So it scaled up really fast. And this was like 2019. Uh-huh. So what happened then in the US was you start to see this emergence of angel operator funds. These are basically part-time VCs, right? Folks who are either founders or had full-time jobs that established tech companies, they had a network, they've done angel investing, and they wanted to institutionalize some of their investing. So most of the LPs were like other venture funds who wanted to, to, to see the deal flow. And Angelist was very much the core enabler of that. We had this fund admin tool where we automated it. So it was very easy to set up a fund. A fund. You could come to Angelus today, and then tomorrow you'd have your fund set up. It, would, it was a vertically integrated SaaS tool, so it was including fund setup, 
legal, finance, KYC, everything all in a packet. And there are fund sizes ranging from 200K to like 50 million when I was there. So working with fund managers across the gamut, and my role is to help them set the fund, help them with fundraising, help them make investments, help them review investments doc, investment docs. So really got exposure to the to the full, yeah, full, full side of running a fund. And then how did you end up starting I Seed Asia after? And you know, just a micro fund. So for people who don't know what that is, how would you describe it? Like what is a micro fund? How do you do how do you start one? So the story there was while I was at Angelus. Angels tended to hire at that time a lot of very entrepreneurial people, right? So this was before kind of the new CEO came in. I've actually started the first week I did, but at that point, it's still very much entrepreneurial. People are working on like side projects, doing their own thing all, all the time. Um, you know, having grow up in Thailand and you know families back here and everything, I'd always wanted to at some point support the entrepreneurship ecosystem here. So when I was at Angels, I started exploring Southeast Asia spent time with a lot of founders, a lot of investors on the ground, just kind of learning what was happening. And a couple of things happened, right? One is that you you saw really strong demographics. It's like rising middle class, people coming online very quickly, high GDP per capita. So a lot of tailwinds followed with what I saw was like the first generation of tech companies going public, right? For in the region. You had Grab, you had C, now go to all publicly listed and usually when that happens, that really fuels an ecosystem to develop faster. So the thesis at that point was like, all right, I think now is a good time to start investing in Southeast Asia, given everything that I was seeing. So after Angelus, ended up raising a small fund to kind of prove out that thesis. Micro funds, let's say I'll define them as like funds that are sub $10 million. Usually, some of them are managed full-time, some of them are managed part-time, but really it's like, smaller funds and why i think they deserve their own categories because these small funds have a level of freedom and autonomy that a lot of the big funds don't right so for the most part the investors in these smaller funds are not in that like endowments pension funds and all that there are either individuals family offices or other funds primarily that's kind of the, the core group of lps and yeah you know this micro fund model took off in the us and the genesis for that, like I mentioned briefly, was you basically had founders or operators who had really good network, really good deal flow. They were angel investing. Their angel investments were doing well, and they wanted to scale up, right? They wanted more leverage on the capital. So some of them ended up raising small funds off the back of their network, off the back of their deal flow, and then professionalizing and institutionalizing that over time. So... There's a couple of funds that have scaled up in the US that have done this. There's a fund called Shrug Capital, their consumer focused fund. Um, I worked with them at Angelus as well. One called Chapter One. They do crypto and, and some AI uh, consumer focused stuff. Uh, Work Life, which is like a B2B SaaS fund. So there's a bunch of these funds, micro funds. You do well, you, you, you get access to top deals, and then you kind of scale up over time. So for me at that point, the thesis was all right, I'd spent a lot of time in the US. I worked at about three funds, uh, built this network at Angelus. How do I leverage that into supporting and taking advantage of the Southeast Asian ecosystem, right? So this is that time is, all right, these regions pretty much operate in the silo. So let's try our best to kind of bring knowledge and capital from Silicon Valley to Southeast Asia. Um, so I did this with Utsav Samani. Um, Utsav is the founder of Angelus India. And he had his own micro fund at the time, I Seed India. He was investing out of that. It was his personal fund. 
he was running Angels India full time. And he helped me set up Angels Southeast Asia, introduced me to a lot of LPs, helped me raise that first fund, and really taught me how to run the micro fund strategy well. So that's kind of the the genesis story there. And then, you know, how were those like two years for you? Because you know, I think I guess it's like one thing to want to be in venture, make your first angel investments. I don't know if you made any inv- angel investments before the fund, so you can correct me later. But it's also like totally different to run your own fund in itself, right? So, what was that experience like for you as like a first time fund manager? I would get, I guess. Yeah, it was definitely scary, but at the same time, I was kind of living my dream, right? Like the the goal was to always start a fund and be that in that position. It just so happened that, you know, got lucky, a lot of things fell into place. So found myself in that position much earlier than I initially would have thought. Um, and I did make, make, start making angel investments before, but they were very like $1,000 to $5,000, right? Like very, very small checks. Did them actually mostly as part of angelist syndicates. So me raising that fund and employing that was really the first time I was investing other people's money and the responsibility that came with that was was definitely scary, but it was just kind of pressure to motivate me to to do that much that that much more. Um, so yeah, with that specific fund, I invested that over two years into thirty companies. So did about one deal a month. It was relatively small checks, right? It was like hundred k checks. Didn't lead any deals. It was mostly co investing. And the way I thought about that fund was, this fund is to prove access first of all, prove that we could co invest with the top local folks here. And build relationships, build positive some relationships. That's one thing I think that's like I'm I think about a lot, which is just kind of the alignment of incentives. Um, with a small micro fund, the big advantage is that you have ownership requirements, which means that you can collaborate very closely, be very friendly with all the regional, local, and even global funds and build good relationships with them that you know you build goodwill and, and work closely with them. So that was really what fun one was about. And it was a lot of fun, you know invested across Indonesia, Singapore, and Vietnam primarily. A couple investments in Thailand as well, but those were the three core geographies. 30 companies, two years, and built a lot of great relationships with both founders, you know, especially those that took the risk and, and you know, let me on the cap table. Yeah, I think like lifelong friendships built there as, as, as well as with investors who, you know, I work with and able to kind of get to know better over time. I'm not a VC, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I think like what I've heard is that like and sometimes when it comes to like really, really good deals, it can be hard to convince the founder to pick you. So as like a micro fund, I guess the ownership requirements are not as high as you said. So that's a plus for you. But was it ever hard to sort of sell yourself to the founder, like say, hey, let me in on the deal? Or and if that happened, like what would you share with them? Like what would the advantages they see with working with you as a micro fund? Or working yeah, in terms of like, I guess, the structure of the microphone that you have and the people you have involved. So yeah, I guess just high level, the way I typically break venture down or the role of investor, one is sourcing, right? You have to see the best deals. Two is picking. You want to be able to diligence and, and pick the right deals of the ones you see. Three is winning, right? This is like the only asset class where just because you want to invest doesn't mean you can. You have to kind of earn the right to invest with the with the founders and for just portfolio support or how you work with the companies post-investment. Yeah, so I guess specifically about winning deals, there are a couple of things that made it easier with the, with the fund setup. One is definitely what you're saying, where because it's a smaller fund, I can write 100, 200K checks, have it be meaningful for the fund and not have to like, have sharp elbows squeeze out anyone else, right? Like if you think about it, if the founder's raising 
let's say a million dollars in your seed round, if you're investing 100K as opposed to 500K, it's so much easier to do that. And the KPI, the core thing that we always talked about internally when me and Utsav was we wanted to be disproportionately the most helpful check on the cap table. So we wanted to add value, go above and beyond that 100K check. And that came in many different ways. The two other big things that I think helped a lot in terms of winning allocation and being able to work with the founders we wanted to. One is something people don't actually think of a lot, but it's like the biggest advantage of doing the microphone and where it's just me is that the relationship with the founder is actually much better over time as opposed to if you were going through the diligence process of a traditional fund. So what I mean by that, let's say on average, it's four to five calls with a founder before you decide if you want to invest or not. All right. With a traditional fund, you talk to analysts, then maybe you talk to the principal, then you talk to the partner, then you go to the IC meeting. And a lot of times you're telling the same story, having the same conversations those four times and it's with different people. With my fund, because it was just me, I had a much deeper relationship with the founders just purely from the fact that I spent more time with them. And it was in a one-on-one setting. So I got to know them over you know, however long it took to do diligence. And at that point, they got to know me better. I got to know them better. And we had a much clearer idea of what working together would be like. Um, and the last thing in terms of what helped us win deals was just the pitch that we had this US network, right? So at that point, I knew a lot of funds in the US already, had either worked with them or good relationships with them. Um, some of them were my LPs in the first fund. I had a lot of operators in my LP as the first one, a lot of founders. And, you know, founders like valuable introductions if you can make them, right? So that was a pitch where it's like, hey, we have this network in the US. No one else or very few other people in Southeast Asia have that. We can be your bridge to the US. If you let us do this 100K check, we'll work with you and kind of open up doors that others can't. So that was the the pitch in a nutshell. What would you say was like your biggest mistake as a first-time fund manager? Oh, good question. Um, say it's less on the investing side and more on kind of the fund management side. As a solo GP, you're responsible for doing everything, right? And the biggest time suck is is fundraising. I think like fundraising isn't really fun for anyone. It's not fun for founders. It's not fun for GPs, right? So. For me, when I raised that first fund, I kind of just stopped fundraising, stopped building relationships with with LPs and just focused purely on investing, which is what I loved, why I wanted to do this initially. Looking back now, it would have been much easier to raise fund two if I had spent more time building relationships with both old LPs who could kind of scale up over time and also new LPs. Right? The tricky thing about fundraising from LPs as a GP is when LPs are investing in a venture capital fund, it's essentially a blind pool of capital. You don't have any control over what the GP does, right? They can kind of allocate the capital however they see fit. And you're really investing in them as a person, even more so than a GP, a VC investing in a founder as a person. It really, really skews the other way when an LP analyzes a fund manager. So because it's a blind pool of capital, the most important thing is trust. And trust is usually built over time. So I think that if I had spent more time with LPs, fundraising, building relationships, um, future fundraises would be much easier. So that was probably the thing where I feel like I could have spent more time doing. But then again, I also didn't want to. So it's kind of like pros, pros and cons. Right? 
And you're just like one person, right? I don't think there was anybody else helping you out with any other side of the fund, right? Um, Utsav helped me with the fundraise for the first one, but running the fund, making investments. And for the second fund now, it's also kind of pure solo. And we can talk a bit about what that model means. Um, but yeah, so, so kind of pure solo GP. No analyst, no associate, no one else. And I was wondering, for your second fund, how come it has a different name? Like what thinking went behind like, changing the name? Yeah, um, not a lot of thought went into it, to be perfectly honest. So for iSeed Southeast Asia, in almost every single press announcement, we kept getting confused with iSeed Ventures, which is a US-based healthcare fund. And that was annoying me. And I realized I wanted to be to, to keep doing it solo. And there's actually a lot of uh, solo GPs in the US that have raised like billion dollars plus, right? Like Elad Gill, Oren Z, like Josh Buckley, Lucky Groom. These guys are incredible solo GPs. And they were just using their names. And I guess the benefits of that is like, you know, the brand accumulates a view, like you kind of become the brand. So that's kind of what I wanted to do. And initially, I didn't have a name for the fund at all. I was just going to invest under under my name purely. But, you know, I had to have legal docs and whatever. So it's just my initials. But essentially, it's it's me, right? It's my fund. Solo GP, like traditional LPs and, and GP structure, but it's a team of one. Got it. Okay. And then, like, you mentioned that you wanted to get into, like, how being a solo GP works. What does your, like, typical week or day look like, considering you have to manage everything? Yeah, I would say it's, like, sprints right when i'm fundraising that's a big focus when i'm investing that's a big focus and then when it's like portfolio support like some weeks i'm just talking to portfolio all week and then some weeks i'm just diligencing companies all week there's not really like a typical day because it varies so much and i travel a lot if i'm spending time in indonesia or singapore or vietnam which i frequently do it's usually like 10 to 12 in-person meetings morning day for like four or five days and those are actually quite fun. I actually really like doing the in-person meetings. But usually when I'm in Bangkok, and I'm probably like six, seven months out of the year, I structure the day quite intentionally. I usually take meetings in the afternoon. So between, let's say, like one to five, I'm usually kind of in in back-to-backs. And that ranges from new investments, diligencing investments, um, talking to portfolio, you know, just supporting them as they're fundraising or through specific decisions, um, catching up with investors, and then during the mornings, I try to keep that open. Like for me personally, it's important to work out every day. Um, and I'm pretty good at that. I probably work out like five, six days a week usually. So kind of putting that into my schedule and then having like a block of kind of like deep concentrated time where I'm thinking about firm strategy, portfolio construction, developing a thesis, diligencing a company. I have that block in the morning depending on the day. I guess when you're working solo, I think the the way that you manage your time and like your, I guess your personal like mental state is really important, which is probably why working out five to six times is really beneficial, I would say. Yeah. Instead of like working <laughs> on some morning to night every day. <laughs> yeah, I think so. And like, you know, I think it's two things, right? Like when you're a founder and when you're solo, I think the blend become between kind of work and personal, there's not really a difference. It's like, I used to have two separate calendars for like personal stuff and work stuff. But now like a lot of the work stuff becomes my social life. I'm like getting drinks or dinner with founder. They've become my friends with investors as well. Or if I'm working on kind of myself as opposed to the fun, like it really does become one thing. And and that's why I think the the solo model um, or, or what has happened over time with the solo model. Um, oh, the, the other thing I was going to mention with the solo model. So I think the biggest problem 
in any organization, right? It doesn't matter if you're a fund or company or whatever. It's the principal agent problem, right? Where the principal, the person who owns the establishment, the fund, the company has misaligned incentives with the agent. And being solo, there's no misalignment of incentives. Like there's zero principal agent problem at all. I think that's like one of the biggest unlocks that I have. And, you know, I don't know if this was necessarily intentional, but towards the end of my first fund, I started noticing, and that's a big part of why I wanted to keep it solo. It's like, there's no politics. There's no different competing incentives. There's just me and what I want to do. And that comes with a lot of freedom, a lot of autonomy, obviously some risks, downside to that. But eliminating that principal agent problem, I think, has been huge for, for me and, and the fund personally. And I think LPs understand and like that. What's one surprising thing about your job that people may not know or underestimate? One surprising thing, I guess, how much selling is actually involved in this job? I think at the core of it, it is sales to the extent of like you're selling yourself to founders if you want to invest, you're selling yourself to other investors because you want them to send new deals and vice versa. You're selling yourself to LPs to be able to kind of fundraise and have them believe in you. So a lot of it is getting people to like you. Yeah. And, and just selling something, right? Because at the end of the day, like VCs are selling money as the product. So you have to kind of differentiate and become a good salesman over time. And that's probably one of the biggest things. And then like talking about, you know, things outside of work, I know you said that your life is sort of blended, but outside your typical VC work, what can we find you usually doing apart from working out? So martial arts, I've still been pretty good at that. I competed in my first jiu-jitsu tournament recently. Um, oh, wow. It's very scary, <laughs> but it was, Wait, it was a lot of fun. What belt are um, you now? In jiu-jitsu. Still a white belt. Haven't haven't oh. been doing it for that long yet. Maybe like coming up on two years towards the end of this year. But yeah, I'll, I'll do that like three, four times a week. And I think, yeah, that, that's something that I really love doing. Aside from that, I really love the ocean, just kind of water activities in general. So scuba diving is something that I've been doing for a very long time. I haven't had the chance of that much this year, but free diving is another one. And I spent a lot of time on that breath work, kind of getting better at that skill. Free diving, if you don't know, is basically kind of scuba diving without a tank, right? So you essentially hold your breath, hold your breath, go for as long as you can. It's scary, but it's really fun. I I really, really like it. How do you see underwater? Do you have goggles at least? Yeah. So free diving, you use goggles. You usually use goggles and fins, just no tank and everything. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, but like the zone you get in when you're free diving and like, like nothing else matters. Like literally everything else fades away because... You know, you're forcing your body to do a very uncomfortable thing, right? Like your body wants to breathe. You're forcing it to kind of stop that function for a while. So it's really like telling yourself your mind is in control of your body and kind of building that skill, I think has a lot of uh, applications to, to work as well. And then surfing is something that I just started this year. So yeah, those are kind of personal things outside of work that I really love doing and, and want to continue doing. So when you're free diving, like how long can you stay underwater? My longest breath hold was four minutes. That's static. So that's kind of just like you're in a pool, you're stationary and you hold your breath and, and you go down. But when you're actually diving, it's no more than like two minutes, right? Because like you're expending energy using oxygen when you like kick your fins and all that. But yeah, that's something I want to spend more time on as well. So you work with a lot of founders, right? So I guess like stepping out of your personal story. So something that we recently started doing is allowing people from the like back scoop or one more scoop community 
um, especially those who are founders, to share some difficulties that they're facing right now with their startup. And they're not necessarily looking for advice per se. Like I know most of these things are not black and white, but maybe you could share your thoughts or if you've seen a founder that you know um, go through a similar situation, you could share a bit about maybe how they tackled it. And the one I wanted to share with you is from an early stage, already um, VC funded startup founder. And that person said that, you know, scaling is very hard, especially when demand is unexpectedly ramping up overnight. And there are lots of issues around having enough personnel, cash flow, cash collection, and then even price changes pop up. Then they find that it's a huge headache to manage. And sometimes that person thinks that they don't even want to scale that fast. And somehow the person feels like, are they being ungrateful? Or maybe they're just too tired of their business because they've been running the startup for about five years now. Mm. So this person has raised venture money as well from institutions or? It says VC funded, yeah, not angel funded. Okay, yeah. So when you're already VC funded, this can get a little tricky, right? Because as soon as you take money from venture investors, you have an agreement that like, you know, you're going to work with them to create massive value. That's what venture is as a capital instrument, right? Companies that are able to create a lot of value in a short amount of time. And that's what all VCs are looking for. I would say that from what I've seen, like this is common, right? Starting and running a company is very, very, very hard. There's a lot of things working against you. And a lot of times you kind of have to just will it into existence through like sheer force of will. And especially if you're alone, it can get lonely and it can be exhausting. A lot of founders burn out. A lot of founders get tired and some point along the journey realize that they don't want to do this anymore. And honestly, I think that that's okay. I think that the best thing to do is have that conversation with your investor early, be very open, be very honest, and hopefully their understanding of kind of the emotions you're going through, right? Like, like to me, I think the purpose of raising venture capital is for a founder to be able to test a specific hypothesis, right? You run experiments that are falsifiable, where if the hypothesis becomes true, you create a lot of enterprise value for the company. And you know, depending on where this founder is in their journey, maybe they've run the experiments, maybe they've proved to be true or not. But I think it's kind of being very honest about with themselves about where they are in that journey and being honest with investors. Like, like I've had companies shut down, right? I've been doing this for four years now. And all VCs understand that that's like a natural part of the process. Honestly, when a company shuts down, my preference is that I prefer the company to shut down quick as opposed to the founder struggling. And this is a bigger problem actually in Asian cultures and Southeast Asia was like founders don't want to share bad news. They're very averse to that. But I think kind of like being on and being honest and being open is the number one policy. Like from a venture investor perspective, we have like 20 to 40 shots in the portfolio, right? We have like 20 different positions, at least. Founders have one. And this is like, they're all in, right? They spend two to three to four years of their life working on this one thing. And so honestly, the biggest opportunity cost is your time as a founder. And I think being honest with yourself and your investors about that is, is probably the best way to go about it. So you talked about like dealing with companies that shut down. Like when a founder shares that with you, what's your typical like response? Are there times when maybe they say that they're thinking of shutting down, but they end up still staying the course? Or most of the time when they reach out to BCs, they're already pretty settled like on actually shutting down already? It depends on the relationship you have with your founder and with your investor. 
there are some founders where you know we're texting every week. There's some we're talking over every month, and there's some where I just get quarterly updates. Right. So like the relationship between founder and investor, it always has to be more of a pull relationship from the founder because you know you can't help someone who doesn't want help. Right. And there's some founders who are like very experienced; they don't need that. So there's kind of different parts of the gambit. Usually, it's like the founder will tell you ahead of time. Typically, it's not great if you're just telling investor. Hey, we're really shut down because usually it's something you want to think through with them. There are shareholders. There is a, you know, fiduciary responsibility. So it's something you typically want to talk about over time to understand how the founders are thinking about that process. The thing I would say to founders who are in that position <clears throat> is that honestly, it's it, it's okay, right? Because of the founders, like this is their whole life. They have employees. They have customers that are depending on them. A lot of times to them, it can feel like the end of the world. But more often than not. At least my hope is that investors will be supportive and understanding of that, and help guide them through whatever is next for them as well. I think big takeaway here is like, at the end of the day, no one is going to remember your failures, right? They only remember your wins, and that's the thing that matters. So, even if your company shuts down, it's okay. You learn from that experience and you can move on. I think from the founder perspective, when they're in their heads, it can feel like it's a lot of pressure. And it's the end of the world, right? And so, hopefully, investors can kind of support throughout that process as well. So, the person like shared this. I think one thing I was wondering was like maybe they could have submitted this on like a bad day, right? I guess maybe there are some founders who might have doubts at some point, saying like, "Oh, maybe I need to shut down." But maybe at the end of the day, like when they reevaluate things, they actually don't need to. So, did you, were you ever sort of in this position where you know you had a founder talking to you saying like? Hey, I think we should shut down, or I, I don't think I really like this anymore. But then, like the final decision was that you know actually things are okay and we should push through. It's like not as bad as we thought. Or most yeah. of the, when this conversation happens, like is it really the end of the line? I guess I haven't had that specific example happen. I have had companies shut down, so not kind of like only they shut down and they end up keep going. No, it, it's definitely not necessarily the end of the line, right? I think the biggest thing to understand here is like. Just how hard the journey is, and especially if you're a solo founder, there's so many ups and downs, right? It's like, hey, today you sign a new customer, the next day you lost two customers. So sometimes it can feel like you're not progressing as fast as you want. Uh, honestly, from what I've seen, the only way to combat that is to just really love the journey, rather than have a specific goal and kind of fighting for that goal in mind. Understanding that, like, this is the journey that you signed up for, and there are going to be natural ups, there are going to be natural downs. You just have to embrace it and do the best that you can every day. Founders who are in that mentality of kind of loving the journey and loving the process tend to do well, tend to do better emotionally than those who are kind of very goal oriented because the goal keeps changing and it's never a straight line to get from point A to point B. Right? It's never like straight. It's always like you take. Detours, you go diagonal, you zigzag, and then you eventually get there. So I think embracing the process as the goal in and of itself, if founders are able to get to that mentality, I think that that helps a lot. Have you seen like you know, yeah, sort of in your career as a VC or in the like companies that you worked in, have you seen like that there are any best practices? Like if a company is going to shut down, what should the founder be doing or watch out for to do the shutdown process well? Yeah. Um, I would say have the conversation early with your investors and your shareholders. Like I said, you know, one big thing I've seen in Southeast Asia is like this idea of like hiding bad news. I think you want to be very upfront and be very transparent and have that conversation early. And usually, your investors would have had portfolio companies shut down. They'll be able to guide you through that process. 
biggest thing is like you want to be fair to every sh- stakeholder, right? Every shareholder, make sure you treat them equally. And yeah, just I think you treat the process with, with grace and respect and the investors will support you. And I, I, yeah, it's nothing to be kind of like ashamed about is probably the biggest thing. Something else like separate from this topic, I was wondering was like the Thai payments report that you shared previously. Is this something that you do for any specific reason? Like why bother to create these reports? Um, and why a Thai fintech report specifically? I mean, Thai payments. Yeah. Specifically. So this is something that I've been working for on for a while, which is kind of do more specific thesis research, more outbound stuff as opposed to kind of being purely inbound and generalist. Um, the reason I picked Thailand and why I picked payments is one, I'm based here, right? I, I do want to kind of support the, the local ecosystem and kind of tell a story and have others understand what's happening because from the outside looking in, it can be quite difficult to understand all the players, what's happening. Um, payments and, and kind of fintech in general, I think is just an area that's always going to have strong investor interests. And so I think that's why starting with this specific report was was helpful. Um, but the basic idea is do a bit more thesis work, do more outbound. Um, two main goals. One is just to build an informed opinion of the space, right? Get to know just by doing this report, I spoke to so many experts in the space, built my knowledge, my expertise as an investor. And two is almost kind of a request for startups kind of thing, right? Inspire founders to like, hey, you know, this has been done, but there are still challenges here. There's still a lot to work on. And so putting that out there, I think um, hopefully it's a good resource for folks to to look at and, and kind of understand the landscape here a bit better. And there are some pretty interesting takeaways we can we can touch on a little bit um, from, from that as well. And then like, is this something that you want to do more often that you plan to do more often at least like have public reports and insights being shared? And is it because you're a solo GP and you also want to build your brand or is it like, are there other like factors driving you making these reports? Yeah, that is part of that, right? I think um, building brand is part of it. Although, you know, I personally don't do a lot of kind of press and interview stuff. So this is one of one of the only ones I've done. I think that's just like a personal preference thing. So the, the big goal is definitely kind of learning. And then second is, is what you said, kind of like building brand, but it's more for founders, right? It's like, I want founders who are thinking about this to challenge me on some of these assumptions, um, to think through some of these things together. And hopefully we can kind of develop the more informed opinion. I think it's what I talked about earlier, where by nature, the fund is designed to be very collaborative. And this is part of that, right? Kind of not having any secrets, but putting it out there so that people are able to kind of build on this work over time. Um, and it's also just great for me. It's just great learning for me to, to understand everything better as well. Were there any like, surprising insights on your side from the report um yeah i guess a couple of things oh, and your earlier question if i'm going to do this more i'll try to but it did take a lot of time so so we'll see. not like something um, we can expect every month but you plan to do it yeah more. okay yeah yeah some of the big takeaways so thailand's very strong adoption of online payments it's fourth globally by transaction value in of, of real-time payments so it's only India, China, and South Korea are ahead of Thailand. So Thailand's number one in, in Southeast Asia. Another thing, I guess, was just the role of the regulatory bodies and the incumbents in this space. There are six regulatory bodies in Thailand within the payment space, two of which are owned by the state, and the remaining four are actually owned by the six big banks in Thailand. So just how much kind of regulation favors the incumbents is, is a big one. The, the virtual banking license, which is 
which basically allows banks to open without having a physical presence is something I'm keeping an eye on as well. Very high minimum capital requirements for that though. So I think it's not going to be for startups. We're going to be kind of like joint ventures between large companies. Um, yeah, those, those were the big, big takeaways. Uh, honestly, the last thing is just like how good the banks here are. Like the two biggest banks here, Gasikon Bank and SCB, they've leaned very heavily into a technology strategy. They've invested real manpower, real energy, real resources into becoming tech first, both through their mobile application, both through their venture arms. So I think they are scary competitors. So, you know, if you're a startup within this space, either be aware of that or potentially work with them somehow as you're kind of approaching that. And then, well, I guess those are going to be really interesting for anybody who wants to know more about the the payments landscape, probably going to look very cool on our, like this, we're doing these like key takes on the podcast. I think the way that you structured it will make it really easy for us to make an additional marketing post for your, your podcast. Okay, great. And okay, I'll well, send you the link so people can download it as well. Yeah, yeah, totally. Okay, so we have this one last question that we ask everybody on the podcast. And this is strictly not about work. So the question is, outside of work, what's one thing you want to achieve in your personal life? And there's no strict timeline. You could achieve this when you're 80 or 90. Or next oh, This one's easy. This is <laughs> something I've been thinking about a lot. Uh, black belt in jujitsu in 10 years. In 10 years? In 10 years. It takes 10 years to get a black belt in jujitsu. Uh, it's that's a very, very long or is journey. Is that an early yeah. already? No, that, that, I think that's like the average. Okay. Well, let's check back in 10 years. I hope Spotify. Yeah, we can check back in 10 years. will still be a white belt. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I learned a lot about you. Really enjoy the chat. Yeah, no, I appreciate the time here, man. That was really fun. And uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah.